and welcome back to our podcast, Making Sense of Science, the show that features interviews with leading experts in health and science about the latest developments and the big ethical questions. I'm your host, Kira Peikoff, the editor of Leaps.org, and today we're going to talk about COVID-19 and the latest vaccine developments. I'm honored to have Dr. Ashish Jha, a physician and researcher who is the dean of the Brown University School of Public Health. Dr. Jha, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. The big news right now is that soon all Americans are about to be eligible to get the COVID vaccine, or at least one of them. Do you think we will have enough to go around for everyone? Oh, no doubt about it. We are uh, in here. We are in early April and demand still outstrips supply. But we are probably three weeks away from that flipping. And so by the time we get into May, we're going to have plenty of supply and we're going to be looking for arms to put those vaccines into. So there's been some talk recently, a controversy around delaying second doses to make sure we have enough. Are you saying you don't really support that approach? Then? That is a, actually that is an approach that I wrote a piece back in January, early January in the Washington Post, in which I said that's what we should do and uh, got a lot of blowback. Uh, it would have made a lot of sense for us to do it in January. We would probably would have saved tens of thousands of lives if we had done that. We didn't, and, and there are some reasons we didn't. At this point in April, it no longer really makes any sense. I mean, you could delay it by a couple of weeks and get a couple of other early people uh, in, but we're only a couple of weeks away from all high-risk people having been vaccinated who want it. We're a month away from pretty much everybody, every adult who wants one to probably get their first shot. I think the delay in second dose is no longer all that interesting of a debate. Well, I have to say that is a little bit of a relief to hear since I'm between my first and second dose. I was hoping it wouldn't get delayed while I'm still waiting for the second so, one. So, you know, what's interesting is I, so I got the Moderna vaccine and I got my second shot of about five weeks, a little over five weeks. And I was actually trying to push it as far out as possible because all of the immunologists I speak to suggest that a longer time interval between the two doses would actually give you much better longer term protection. So the fact that we did three to four weeks between this is really an artifact of trying to run clinical trials very quickly. And we wanted to get some results very quickly. But I don't know any immunologist who thinks if we weren't in a pandemic, we would have ever decided to try to get two vaccine shots in three to four weeks together. Most people think that 10 to 12 weeks between the two shots is much more optimal for long-term immunologic protection. What is the scientific reason behind that? It, there's this whole idea of, of maturity, of, of letting your immune system mature before you give it that second shot to give it the boost. Um, obviously, uh, between the first and second shot, you, you still have a lot of protection, but not as much. Uh, but if you give your immune system more, uh, more opportunity to mature, then the second shot really gives you uh, a bigger boost and, and probably a more durable boost uh, in terms of immunity. So by shortening that time interval, at least many immunologists I know think that uh, we are probably reducing the durability of the vaccine. And that may mean that we just have to come back for a booster earlier than we would have liked. Yeah, that was actually leading to my next question, which is, I know this is, you don't have a crystal ball, but how long do you think immunity will last? And does it differ between the mRNA vaccines and the J&J? &J? 
Yeah, another really good question. We don't know. Obviously, we have a floor now with both Moderna and Pfizer, we think at least six months, but that's a floor, not a ceiling. And none of us think it only lasts six months. So um, it, it almost surely lasts more than a year. It almost surely does not last forever. Um, so somewhere beyond that, and we're going to have a lot more data to actually be able to sort out. I suspect we'll start seeing some more breakthrough infections. We'll see uh, some immunity waning. And then at some point, we're going to feel like, okay, we now have enough evidence. And I would not be surprised if people who are getting vaccinated this year with the mRNA vaccines uh, get a booster next year. J&J, &J we know less about. We just have less long-term data. Uh, but by again, by summer to fall, we'll have a lot more data on J&J. &J. And again, I would not be surprised if we end up needing a, a booster on J&J &J as well. So speaking of breakthrough infections, the CDC director recently said that vaccinated people, quote, do not carry the virus, don't get sick, and that is not just in the clinical trials, but it's also in the real world data, unquote. Um, and of course, there was a big backlash to her comments with experts saying that's just not true. And I think it's created a lot of confusion. So what actually is the case? Yeah, I thought the backlash was was a bit of an overreaction. Um, Dr. Walensky, the CDC director, was largely right. Um, here's what we know today. If you are fully vaccinated, your chances of getting infected at all is really low. It's not zero. Nothing in life is zero or 100%, but it's really low. It's um, Your chances of having symptomatic infection is down probably about 95%. Your chance of having asymptomatic infection is probably down 80, 90%. Your chances of transmitting it to somebody else is probably down 80, 90%, though it could actually be more than that. And so what she was saying was that when you look at this in real life and you look at it in millions of people, you don't see much in the way of, of uh, vaccinated people getting infected. A few, but not much. And you don't see a whole lot of transmission from vaccinated people. And she should have said, we all, you know, in, uh, vaccinated people almost never get infected. Almost never. But she said never. And people got really upset. But she wasn't, I mean, she was largely right. But it's, you know, it's sort of the, if you're expecting 100%, like literally, you know, like I don't have 100% guarantee that I'm not going to be hit by lightning this year. But I mostly walk around in my life assuming I'm not going to get hit by lightning. Um, it's sort of that kind of thing. Of we should assume that people are, are largely protected. And again, obviously, risk is greater than getting hit by lightning. We will see a few people get infected. But it's going to be very, very infrequent, and it's going to be incredibly rare to see people get infected, get sick, uh, or die once they've been vaccinated. And that's what we really care about. One quick thing on this. In Israel, uh, among 600,000 vaccinated people, we saw uh, there's data that maybe eight of them got hospitalized with COVID at some point after being fully vaccinated, and maybe two died from COVID. So again, not 100% protection. But two out of 600,000 people during a time when Israel was having a large outbreak, that's pretty incredible level of protection. Yeah, that's really remarkable. I think that's as close to 100% as you could possibly hope Absolutely. for. In terms of those breakthrough infections, have scientists come up with any risk factors for that, like age or immune system, or is it just crapshoot? Yeah, right now there have been so few that we don't have good data, and people are working on that. People are wondering, is it is there a, a variant of the virus that's causing it? Is it inadequate immune response? Is it um, age-related inadequate immune response? A lot of stuff we're sorting out. You know, I, I mean, I'm, 
I'm happy to make some kind of speculative guesses. It, it may be that we see more of it in older people who may get a little bit less of a strong immune response, though the clinical trials suggested for the mRNA vaccines that older people did very, very well. Um, we'll find out. But part of the reason we don't know is because there are so few cases of them that we really don't have enough data to figure out why our when and under what circumstances fully vaccinated people uh, are still having breakthrough infections. I want to cycle back to something you mentioned at the outset, which is that in a couple of weeks, we're going to switch over from vaccine demand to having almost too much vaccine to go around for anyone who wants it. And then I think the issue of vaccine hesitancy will play a much bigger role as as of now, up until lately, it's been you know the hottest commodity in town to get a vaccine appointment. And it's almost hard to imagine in a month trying to convince people to get these really coveted spots. So what do you think will be important in terms of solutions to that? Yeah, great question. Yeah, so I have thought about in the U.S., I've thought about the American adult population as like 60, 20, 20. So let me explain. 60% of people desperately want the vaccine. And uh, obviously we're talking about adults. And so 60% adults, most of them uh, will have had their first shot uh, as I said, by the end of April, I mean, it might be the first week of May. I, I did some basic back of the envelope calculations and thought around May 5th, it'll be earlier in some states where hesitancy is higher. It'll be later in other states where a lot of people want vaccinations, but somewhere in that kind of first week of May. That's the 60% group. The second, the 20% first, you know, the, the next 20% group are people who are kind of wait and see. They're not opposed to it, but they're not really all that thirsty for it. And for that group, it's probably going to be a combination of social pressure and convenience. So they're not going to be refreshing the websites trying to get an appointment. But if they're at their doctor's office and the doctor says, hey, you really should get the vaccine. And by the way, I have some J&J &J in my refrigerator. Can I just give you a shot today? That group will probably, a lot of them will say, sure. Right? They're not opposed, but they're not looking for it. Then there is a 20% that's pretty opposed. And that group really requires engagement from trusted voices. So a lot of them are conservative, evangelical, white Christians. You know, that group really is going to be persuaded not by public health people like me, but they're going to be persuaded by religious leaders and by leaders in those communities. That's going to be a long-term game that's going to take a while. Um, the, so the 20% in the middle, the kind of wait and see, I can imagine a bunch of them getting vaccinated in May, June, July, uh, if it's convenient, if it's easy, if they're getting pressure. But that last 20%, we, I don't know how many we'll get, but it may take quite a while. So it's interesting that resistance to the vaccine is, is quite high among Republicans and specifically Republican men. Why do you think that is, especially given that these vaccines were developed with support from the Trump administration? Yeah, I think there are two sets of issues. And I think there's the second, I was going to say, is this a missed opportunity for the Trump administration? Because President Trump should have gotten his vaccine live on television. He got it. And while he was still in, in the White House, he didn't do that. Uh, I, I keep hoping that he will cut a, a commercial and add. He can call it the Trump vaccine. I would be delighted. Um, I'm happy to call it the Trump vaccine. Uh, whatever it will take to persuade people, uh, it really should have. I think part of the, what creates hesitancy, there are two sets of issues of what's creating hesitancy among Republican white men. I mean, one, uh, 
is they have been fed, I think a lot of them, not all of them, and, and but a chunk of them have been fed a steady diet of misinformation about how this uh, virus is a hoax and it's really not a big deal. If you believe the virus is a hoax and not a big deal, you're not going to be excited about getting a vaccine against it. Um, and the second is a lot of the people who've been spreading misinformation about the virus being a hoax have now turned to becoming misinformationists around the vaccine. And now they're talking about the vaccine as genetic engineering and all this crazy stuff. And, you know, people are a product of the information ecosystem that they live in. And so I don't blame anybody who's hesitant or even really resistant. Uh, I just think we need to help people see the broader set of data and facts. Yeah, it's a huge challenge. What do you think about the idea of vaccine passports? Do you think that will help in a certain way, pressure people in a good way to get the vaccine or turn off more people and cause more harm in that way? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So I think of vaccine passports, some people are calling them vaccine visas because they may be temporary, um, as inevitable in the sense that you are going to have private companies who, in order to build confidence in people engaging with economic activity with them, will want to know that it's safe. So, for instance, I'll give you the most direct example from my life. Uh, this week, uh, Brown University announced that we are going to have essentially a normal fall semester and a requirement that all students be vaccinated if they want to be on campus. That's a vaccine passport of, of a type. Um, I can imagine, I've been talking to people who run theaters, concert halls, and they're saying, how do we make sure that we can have a normal concert this fall or over the holidays? Well, one way is they can make sure that everybody who comes in to listen to the concert uh, is vaccinated. So that is going to push organizations to require it. And then there's going to be a whole set of issues like, you know, what, how, what's an authenticated vaccine passport and who determines it? What I am confident of is at least in the United States, you're not going to have a government run vaccine passport. You're not going to show your official U.S. government certified. I think that will wig too many people out. It's not, it's not kind of within our culture. But you are going to have some private companies offering up this solution. It's already happening. I'm getting outreach from private companies saying, you know, will you help us on this? Um, I'm, I'm not involved in any of them. But the point is, uh, I think this is inevitable. And then the question is, how do we manage this effectively? Mm -hmm. Makes sense. And I know that some of the states are really against it, like Texas and Florida, but New York is more going for it. And it just seems to be varying state by state. Yeah. And, and I think... I think it'll, we'll see what businesses do. I think businesses will have a very large role to play in over the long run influencing policy in this area. What's your take, I have to ask, about the AstraZeneca vaccine? It's been such a striking situation with so many twists and turns there, and now it's implicated in these rare blood clots in younger people. Um, do you think our FDA should approve it here, or should we not? Yeah, yeah this has been such a a funny tale because um, all the other vaccines, J&J, Moderna, Pfizer, things have gone so smoothly. Um, but AstraZeneca, there have been problems, so many problems with the with the way that the vaccine trials were run. Most of the problems are around communication. The, the company has done a really bad job of communicating its trial results, working with regulators. So they don't go into this situation with a lot of goodwill built up. Uh, my best read of the data 
is that these vaccines probably are associated with this rare um, blood clotting disorder. Um, it's probably way safer than many medicines we use. So I think, for instance, in the hospital, we use a drug called heparin all the time. Heparin can cause a very similar kind of blood clots that, that this vaccine seems to. And with a much greater degree of frequency, and yet we use heparin. So it's a reminder that almost nothing is risk-free and in places around the world where this is the only vaccine available, it is a very high-quality vaccine otherwise. Uh, for high-risk people, people who are older, people with chronic disease, it's a no-brainer. They should get this vaccine. The question of what to do in the United States, I mean, obviously, at the end of the day, FDA will decide. Um, even before this came up, I was of the belief that Americans were almost never going to get the AstraZeneca vaccine because, again, it's going to take three, four weeks for the FDA to review all the data, make an authorization. And by that time, we'll have plenty of vaccines between the three that we already have, with others also coming, Novavax, uh, for instance. And therefore, I've been arguing for getting the AstraZeneca vac uh, vaccines that we have stored up, uh, distributed to the world, sending it out. The big issue with the AstraZeneca vaccine is that it is the one that I thought would ultimately vaccinate the world. It's been it's being produced in lots of countries. It's cheap. It's easy. Um, I worry about this vaccine being the one that really vaccinates the world. I, again, I would like to see other options be available for the world. It's a perfectly good vaccine um, with these rare side effects, but uh, I wish we had more choices. So what is your worry due to if it's such a good vaccine then? No, my worry is for two reasons. One is it does not seem to work against the 351, the B1351 variant that we saw originally from in South Africa. And then the second is that these rare um, side effects will turn people off and will cause a, a chunk of hesitancy to it that will make it hard to achieve high levels of, uh, of immunity. And for really low-risk people who still need to get vaccinated in order to achieve herd immunity, uh, it may not be worth it. If you're very low-risk, uh, then you may choose not to get the vaccine because your risk from COVID is not that much worse than your risk from the, uh, from the vaccine, and that will cause problems. So that's why we need more than just the AstraZeneca vaccine as part of our global strategy. That makes sense. And so speaking of these variants, which is always the thorn in our side lately, so just this week, the CDC said that the UK strain is now the dominant strain in the US. How concerned are you about this fourth wave starting to take hold? And are we vaccinating fast enough? Yeah. So we saw the we saw the B117, uh, the UK variant coming and, and all of us were predicting that it would become dominant by the end of March. So here we are a week into April. So this is the this is not a surprise. It is what is driving the surge in places like Michigan right now. There is a real debate in the public health among public health experts about what is going to happen over the next three four weeks. There's a group of people who believe that we're in the beginning of a potentially massive fourth wave, and I do not subscribe to that view. The people who are in that camp are really smart, really thoughtful, have gotten lots of stuff right in this pandemic. And so I disagree with them with some trepidation. I think we have so much population immunity built up in our society, in our country. At this moment, I believe at least one in two Americans has some amount of immunity to the virus. And therefore, in that context, I don't see this taking off. I see a few states may see some spikes. I 
some states are going to see more infections, but we're not going to see a catastrophic wave. We're not going to see hospitalizations get overwhelmed. Uh, over hospitals get overwhelmed. We're not going to see three, four thousand deaths a day the way we did over the holidays. We're gonna. It's going to be a bumpy ride. You know, some people have described it as a category five hurricane, and I say no. It's a passing thunderstorm, and in the middle of it, it can feel kind of bad. But we'll be through it in the next three, four weeks. Well, that's certainly reassuring. And um, I've read and I'm hoping that you can confirm that our current vaccines are very good at resisting this UK variant. They're right? fabulous. They work really, really well. So if you're worried about variants, the best way to deal with this is getting vaccinated because all three of the uh, authorized vaccines work terrifically against uh, the B117. And I just wanted to ask you, this is something a lot of friends and family have been talking about. So I figured, why not um, why not ask you this question in terms of the side effects of getting the shots? So everybody knows that at this point it's very common to get chills or headaches or uh, unpleasant side effects. But there's sort of a debate about whether people should fully avoid painkillers like Advil or Advil and Tylenol. And could they interfere with the antibody production? Is it before or after that they should avoid it? So can you give us some clarity on that? Yeah, I, I wish I can. Uh, I wish I could. I don't know that I can. Um, we don't know for sure. Um, most uh, immunologists that I have spoken with uh, say, you know, the idea that you could shut down the immune response by taking two Tylenols is uh, pretty ridiculous, meaning it's probably fine. There are people who talk about a theoretical risk, particularly with ibuprofen, especially if you take it before, that it could prevent kind of the inflammatory response that's so helpful. So I'll tell you what I did. My approach was after the first shot, my arm was pretty sore. I knew it would be after the second. Uh, I got Moderna, which tends to cause more of a reaction after the second dose than Pfizer. Uh, so I was ready to, to have uh, symptoms. I did not take anything pre and about eight hours after my arm was really sore and I was feeling just a little chills. And so I took some Tylenol, which I thought was totally fine. My point on this is to people, I wouldn't worry about it excessively. And there's a theoretical risk, and the, and that's really around pre you know, pre medication, and maybe slightly more with ibuprofen. But this is all speculation. The science on this is not very good. And again, the chances that you're going to negate the benefits of a vaccine with two to two extra strength Tylenols is pretty darn unlikely. Okay, that's what I figured. But it's good to hear. And. On the topic of practical advice for people going through the vaccine process and going through still dealing with safety around COVID and wanting to avoid it, what, in your opinion, are the biggest mis misconceptions that people still have around how it spreads or how to stay safe? Like, do you still think the six feet apart has any merit today? Or are we way past that? I think we're kind of past that. The, look, the, the biggest mental model mistake we made with this virus is we sort of treated it like the flu. And flu is spread largely through droplets, and droplets don't go past six feet very much. This virus is largely not spread through droplets. It can be spread through droplets, but that's not the primary mechanism. It's primarily through aerosols. It's an airborne disease. And that means a couple of things. If people are masked up, you know, and, and there's good ventilation inside or you're outside, you really can't spread the virus very easily. I mean, obviously, if you're like standing next to each other or hugging each other for 20 minutes, yes, you can, uh, even if you're masked up. But if you're like, so yeah, six feet is probably fine. Three feet is probably okay. As long as everybody's masked up and there's good ventilation. If you're not masked up, 
six feet won't protect you, 10 feet won't protect you. There's a really interesting uh, new CDC report of um, some a group of people who got infected and they were 15 meters or 45 feet away from somebody who was infected and singing. They were in a church, poor ventilation. With poor ventilation and no masks, 45 feet away is not safe enough. So that's why I've always been frustrated that we focus a lot on three feet, six feet. It's about, it's, okay, like more distance is better, but what really matters is masking and ventilation. Uh, that's obviously all for people who are unvaccinated. Once people are vaccinated, and if you're among vaccinated people, there's not much risk of a spread and we haven't seen much of it. Uh, so I think a lot of stuff starts becoming pretty safe. That's great. Thank you for that clarity. And what are your thoughts on when kids and teens will be able to access the vaccines? It's ah, a great question. It's a question I get at home all the time. My oldest is almost 16 and her friends are all 16. And 16 and 17 year olds can get vaccinated with Pfizer. And my daughter, who's my oldest, who's 15, uh, cannot. Uh, so she wants to know when she can get vaccinated. And then I have a one. I have another chick, child who just turned 14. And then I have one that's turned that's nine. So if we think about those ages, there's so 16 and over, we can get it now. Pfizer. 12 to 15 is the next group that's going to become eligible. I suspect sometime in May, it might be June. Pfizer has new data on 12 to 15 year olds. They're going to submit it uh, to the FDA. It is possible that FDA could ask for longer follow up. Based on what I have seen, I think the FDA probably will authorize it. And that means 12 to 15 year olds could start getting vaccinated as early as May or June. The big question is under 12. And there's several trials going on. They're early. And the question will be, um, if infection numbers drop a lot, it's going to be hard to even show efficacy because if no one's getting infected. And that means that those trials could easily, will, will drag through on through the summer, could drag on into the fall and winter. And we may not have good data on under 12 until late winter. I'm hoping it's going to be a lot sooner than that. Uh, but I don't know. And so that the biggest uncertainty is kids under 12. So knowing that kids that age, and I have a son who's four, going back to school, obviously none of the kids are vaccinated. Should the teachers be vaccinated? And if they're not, should schools be mandating it at this point or soon? Yeah, so about, um, so almost every state has prioritized teachers. Teachers have been near the front of the line and a vast, vast majority of teachers across the country are now vaccinated. Um, so teach, and when I say teachers, I also mean staff at school. Uh, so teachers and staff are largely vaccinated. I, I think on the issue of should it be mandated, uh, you know, my take would be that it would, it would obviously make the school environment safer. I don't think it's critical. Uh, if you can get 80, 90% of people vaccinated, it'll make a huge difference. But ultimately teachers and, and staff should be safe because they're vaccinated. What we have seen is young kids generally don't tend to get as inf infected as much. They don't tend to spread as much. Um, the problem is B117, the variant that's now dominant, it, isn't, it doesn't have a predilection for kids, but it's just more contagious for everybody, including for kids. So we are seeing a little bit more spread among kids. Again, my take is based on everything we know right now. If kids are masked up, if there's reasonable amount of ventilation in those rooms, teachers and everybody, all the adults are vaccinated. It's a pretty safe school environment. Right. Okay. And what if the teachers don't want to get vaccinated? 
so there's a broader question of if teachers don't want to be vaccinated then it's not really clear what else we can do i mean I, again i don't think they need to be vaccinated in order, order to be back in school safely um, again mask wearing and ventilation should keep people safe but we probably can't go out of our way to make a whole lot of um, additional accommodations for teachers who are choosing for no other reason. And there aren't very many medical reasons why people can't get vaccinated. But, you know, one of the broader questions that's come up, and this actually is not just about teachers, is what are the societal accommodations we want to make once we get into May, June to protect people who are choosing not to be vaccinated? So, for instance, should we have mask wearing in grocery stores? Uh, well, the only people in grocery stores who should be at risk, outside of kids, I suppose, are adults who've chosen not to be vaccinated once we get, once we get into May-June. I don't know that as a society we are going to tolerate long-term restrictions because it's not like by summer or fall it'll get better. And so are we going to say forever that we're going to not we're going to require masks in grocery stores for the rest of our lives because a chunk of people have chosen not to be vaccinated that strikes me as unlikely um we may say we're okay we're going to require it until we all hit herd immunity which might take a long time I, my sense is that's not where policy is policy is we want to protect people who can't get vaccinated. We want to protect people. But once people can and there's and becomes a choice, we're probably going to lift those restrictions. And I suspect that'll happen in schools as well. That makes sense. So there's all this debate about herd immunity and when we'll reach it. But it strikes me that it isn't necessarily this all or nothing boundary, like we are zero, 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 then boom, herd immunity and everything changes overnight. Can you talk a little bit about what that what it actually means and how close we are to getting there? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I often say that, you know, the day a society, a neighborhood, a city hits herd immunity, no one notices. Uh, it isn't it is not like all of a sudden church bells ring. Everybody goes, oh, my God, we finally hit it. It's better. Um, it's a continuum, it's a glide path. And what, what happens is as you start approaching herd immunity, infection numbers really start dropping, things start getting better. That's what we've seen in Israel. I don't think Israel's hit herd immunity, but their case numbers are way low uh, and they're doing great and they're largely open. And the key is to keep vaccinating, vaccinating. Herd immunity is a, is a threshold beyond which with no other restrictions, infections cannot become self-sustaining. You'll see a few outbreaks here and there, but they'll die out with no other restrictions. And we don't know what the herd immunity threshold is. We think, and again, what people are modeling is that it's probably in the 80 to 90% immunity range. We're obviously nowhere near that. Right now, I think in the US, about half of adults have immunity. With lots of vaccinations, we can get into the 70s and 80s, uh, but you still have kids, you gotta vaccinate children. It's going to be very hard to hit herd immunity if none of the kids are vaccinated, which is why it's going to be important to get kids vaccinated when they can. And um, but well before that th uh, threshold gets hit, infection numbers will get very, very low across the country. That's great. So do you think that will be more or less back to normal across the country this summer? I, I expect the summer to be really good, like very close to a normal summer. Uh, you know, I do think like large indoor gatherings may still be a problem. So I may not go to a concert over the summer, uh, indoor concert, but I certainly go to an outdoor one. Um, and, you know, maybe the super jam packed ones, maybe. So there's probably like a threshold beyond which some super high risk things may feel less comfortable. Um, 
but outdoor things generally will be pretty safe. I can imagine indoor dining. You know, I'm fully vaccinated. Um, I might go to do indoor dining with my wife when she gets vaccinated, but maybe we'll hold off on our kids on an indoor restaurant because they're not going to be vaccinated. So there are going to be these modest um, accommodations this summer that people will continue to make until we get a bit more into the fall. So if you and your wife were fully vaccinated, would you go to a large indoor wedding this summer? Probably, but I would feel much better if everybody else who was there was vaccinated as well. Yeah, because I imagine that's going to be a, a risk tolerance question for a lot of people who are invited to big events that were postponed in the last year and have to decide what to do about that. Yeah. And I and I think partly what will make it safer is that we won't have large outbreaks by the time we get to the summer. But, you know, there are people talking about large indoor gatherings now. And I think it's deeply responsible because, A, a chunk of high risk people still haven't gotten vaccinated. And B, we have a lot of large outbreaks happening in many places. And so I would be very careful right now. But, yeah, I can imagine over the summer going to a large indoor um, wedding if I knew that everybody else was vaccinated. Sure. And and I'm just wrapping up, but I can't help but ask you, I think it's important to touch on the fact that other countries right now have it so much worse, like India and Brazil going through these horrible surges and they don't have the access we have to the vaccines. What do you think the U.S.'s role should be in that? I think America has got to play a leadership role. No one else is going to do it. America is the one country that can substantially ramp up production of these vaccines, uh, drive more manufacturing, get vaccines out to the world. Plus, we have a lot of vaccines that we have bought up. And by the time we get into May and we're, we're trying to find arms for these vaccines, we should start sending vaccines abroad. Um, and making sure that healthcare workers in other countries, elderly people in other countries are starting to get vaccinated. So we need a very aggressive global strategy for vaccination. Uh, it's good for America. It's good for the world. And I don't see any other country being able to really take that kind of global leadership role. And do you expect that to happen with the Biden administration? I sure hope so. I'm, I'm telling anybody in the administration who's willing to listen to me, and I do talk to a lot of them. No, the folks in the Biden administration totally get this. It's not like, and this is not the, uh, without sounding overly political, this is not the Trump crowd. Like Donald Trump's administration uh, really somehow thought in a global pandemic that you could vaccinate only America and ignore the rest of the world or even really disrespect the rest of the world and get away with it. That's not the Biden team. They understand this a global pandemic requires a global solution. They're caught in a situation where the domestic politics requires them to focus on the U.S. I totally get that. Uh, I It is job of people like me to push them to be more aggressive on the global front. And I plan to continue pushing them and, and hope that they listen. And I suspect they will listen. So overall, everything considered with the variants, the vaccines and everything we've been talking about, how do you think things are going to look for the fall to winter this year? I think it's going to be pretty good. Uh, I do expect a surge of cases. A surge may be a strong word, but a bump in cases late fall and winter. We think this is a seasonal virus. But if a large majority of Americans are vaccinated, that's going to make a huge difference. We need to continue having tests around and doing testing, and that'll help us see a surge coming. Uh, I don't expect to have the kind of surge that would lead to massive hospitalizations and deaths. Uh, we're not done with this pandemic, but we should be in the next month or six weeks, certainly by the end of May, ideally before then. We should be through the worst of it, and we will be able to begin to think about what a new life looks like with the virus still around, uh, but not with the horrible um, way that it has dominated our lives. 
Nice. And if I could just end on a more personal note, uh, I'm just curious to ask you, what is the best thing that you've been able to do since you got vaccinated? Oh, well, that's easy. Um, I had my parents come and visit, my elderly parents. They came and saw uh, all of us for the first time in 14 months. And everybody was able to give hugs. My, my kids gave my parents hugs. And we were all able to sit around and have dinner together. And until my parents were vaccinated, there was no way that that would have felt safe. That's amazing. It's really hopeful and definitely encourages me and hopefully all of our listeners as well that we're getting towards that more normal time again in our country and, and hopefully around the world. Absolutely. It, it, look, the, the acute phase of this pandemic is beginning to come to an end in the U.S. We have a lot of work to do around the world, and, and that's going to take a lot of time, and we need to do that work. Um, but pandemics end, and this pandemic will end. And how quickly it ends and how, with how little suffering is really up to us, and that's still the work ahead. Lots to think about. Thanks so much for this fascinating discussion, and to everyone for listening. If you like the show, follow Making Sense of Science to hear new episodes once a month. We look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks so much.